We've been going through a series looking at encounters with Jesus in the book of uh, Luke, Gospel of Luke, one of the four biographies of Jesus. And uh, this morning, Alice is, is speaking to us uh, from Luke chapter 7, and we're looking at John the Baptist. So, Alice, over to you. Hi, everyone. Lovely to see you and connect with you again. I am going to actually start by diving straight in to the Bible. I was once recently asked to do a talk in an evening and I was given an hour and for the first time in my life I felt I could fully express the nuances of the talk I'd been given. So forgive me if this is quite whistle stop because it's hard to do things justice in 20 minutes but at the same time I recognise that is an appropriate length for this kind of venue. So I'm going to go straight in. I'm going to take you on a journey. We're going to go to somewhere else I love how the Bible Project talks about going to a different country. And um, I've been thinking about that. And I think the three things we need to do every time we approach the Bible mentally is is think of ourselves as going over to a bridge. And this isn't just a different country that is in in the 21st century. This is about going over a bridge and three fundamentally different things happen in this country. There's a very famous quote about the past or history is another country. They do things differently there. So the first thing we're going to do is we're going to go back, at least for some of this talk, to about 2,500 years, but certainly 2,000 years. So we're going to go back into a very different period of time. That's the first thing we're crossing over into this other country as we we look at the Bible now, going over a bridge in two two to 2,500 years ago. We're also going to a different place for those of us who are watching from Bristol, Britain, Europe, even the West, we're going to the ancient Near East. So the region around Israel, the Middle East now, North Africa, Southern Europe, that kind of region, but particularly Israel today. And we're also going to a radically different culture. One of our, as always, one of our strengths, but also our great weaknesses, possibly Our hole in the Titanic of the West is our radical individualism, as cultural commentator Mark Sayers puts it. And it could be the thing that drags us down. The culture we're going to go to, the country we're going to go to, it's unbelievably community connected in ways that blow our mind and we find incredibly hard to understand. Multi-generational, tribal, family, ancestry, all these things were so fundamental to the core identity of these people. So we're going to a very different time in history, two to two and a half thousand years ago. We're going to a radically different culture. And we're also, and, and a completely different place, the ancient Near East, but, and we're also going to another language. So the Bible is written originally in mainly two languages and a bit of a third one. These are ancient languages, ancient Hebrew which really uh, came to the full a few hundred years before Jesus. That was really the time when a thousand years of of poems that had been passed down through oral tradition, written on animal skins, on rocks, on parchments, were all collated together by this community of prophets and put together in what came to be known as the Hebrew Bible. 
And then the New Testament, which we'll be referencing as well, is in Koiner or common ancient Greek. So we are going to translation. We're not going to original manuscripts or texts. And it's really important when we do this, because what we can do is we can relax when we go to the Bible and just enjoy going there. We, we take away the two things we need to deal with, is our need to put science in it and our need to put politics in it from a Western 21st century viewpoint. That is disrespectful. This is, this is not written from the Western 21st century perspective. We need to lay that aside, our side of the bridge, if we want to hear what these authors are saying. Cross over the bridge and land in a different time, in a different country, with different languages and a radically different culture. And it may be we come back over the bridge hearing something new for ourselves, but it may not be. We don't go with an agenda. We go with no agenda. We just go to listen and to watch and to learn. That said... There's this crisis in the history of Israel. We learnt about this way back in lockdown under the Nehemiah series of rebuilders where the people, the last tribe, if you like, of of Judah, the chosen people of God, were put into exile in Babylon under the next empire, Persia. They were released and some of them came back and rebuilt the temple. They rebuilt the walls. They rebuilt worship. And people then talk about this 400 years of silence, which is actually completely false. This was a, 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 a period in history called Second Temple Judaism, which was a proliferation of writings, of thinking, of processing. And part of that came the Hebrew Bible in three different sections, 24 scrolls, the same context as a content as our Hebrew, our Old Testament, what we Christian tradition has come to call the Old Testament, but actually in a, in a slightly different order. And Jesus remarks at the end of Luke, he says, the Hebrew Bible, the law, the prophets, the Psalms, those three sections, they point to me. So there's this beautiful moment in history where these texts have come together into one set of 24 scrolls which would be placed in synagogues and the temple not in homes they were too expensive they were they were accessed through community in such a way that we get to the new testament and all jewish people particularly the boys who became men would be immersed in this worldview in this way of thinking that there is a hebrew bible that speaks of one who is to come a mashiach an anointed one in the greek a christos a christ who will completely deliver them as Israel, back to how they were designed to be God's promised people. And it had become politicised by this state, so it was about throwing off the tyranny of Rome. And that's where we come to in the first century, when this man called John, the baptizer or the immerser, comes into the desert in the wilderness, in Judea, saying, the time has come, prepare the way, the Mashiach, the anointed one, the one the Hebrew prophets were speaking about, the one that's collated in this incredible collection of scrolls we have, the figure we've been yearning for, where everyone failed, Abraham, Moses, David, they couldn't quite attain to this person, this person is coming, and I'm the one to declare he's going to come. And you see this extraordinary glory days, if you like, of John the Baptist in the wilderness, in Judea, crowds are coming to him. Crowds are leaving the comforts of the city behind, the sophistication behind. They're coming saying, what must we do to be ready for this anointed one to come? There was a stirring, there was a sense that finally all the hopes, all the dreams, all the desires would be fulfilled. And John the Baptist is the one preparing everyone for that. It even says in the gospel account in Luke that 
Roman soldiers were coming to him, asking what they must do to change. Not just ordinary crowds, not just Jewish people under the oppression who wanted liberation, but Roman soldiers themselves were beginning to be convicted that their way of life was not God's design for them. That they, if they could radically change, they could enter into to this whole new way to be human. And so there were these glory days. There was this there was this power about him. People were even thinking, oh, is he actually the Messiah? To the extent religious people were sent to him, are you the Messiah? And he says, no, I'm the one fulfilling the prophecy in Isaiah. Prepare a way for that anointed one to come. And that is the backdrop for this moment that we're going to look at. And it's an interesting encounter between Jesus and John the Baptist because actually, tragically, They don't actually physically meet again. After John the Baptist affirms Jesus is the Messiah, he baptises him, he releases him to the greatness of his ministry. John the Baptist, who is the last of the Hebrew prophets and in the line of the Hebrew prophets, is continually speaking truth to power, challenging the corrupt priesthood. And, and royalty, the monarchy of the, of the system, like all the, all the rest of them, eventually himself was put in prison and resisted by this one, Herod Antipas. He challenged some of his lifestyle choices repeatedly, and eventually Herod Antipas has him, and he's in prison awaiting execution. The glory days are over. He's on his own. He has a massive crowd, a massive movement around him, but he's, he's isolated. The power he's speaking truth to has come against him and put him in solitary confinement and he's awaiting his execution. And this is the moment of encounter with Jesus that we're going to dive into today. So if we look at, it's Luke 7, 18 to 35. John's disciples, so his followers, of which he had crowds, told Jesus, told John all about all these things. We've just seen a resurrection of a widow's son from the dead. We've seen the healing of a Roman's servant. Extraordinary things. And calling two of them, Jesus said, sent them to the Lord to ask, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses and evil spirits. He gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear. The dead are raised and good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble or take offence on account of me. Something's happened to John during this process. Something's happened to him. He's beginning to doubt. Maybe disappointment has come in. This is not how it's supposed to end. It is not about another Hebrew prophet being taken out by the power. It's not about a Messiah who doesn't overthrow the tyranny of Rome and establish independent Jewish rule. The whole point of this Messiah coming was that everything would be changed. Finally, injustice would be dealt with, justice would be done, and Israel would be the promised land that God had said, that God had said Israel would be. And really the core issue here is why the righteous suffer. That's what he's getting at, is that he's done all the right things. He's done none of the wrong things. He lived a blameless life. As far as we can tell, John the Baptist didn't put a step wrong. 
And he saw real change and real power as a result. And then finally, he ends up, just like all the rest of them, injustice seems to prevail. This is speaking to any of us who feel we're doing all the right things in life. And it just doesn't look like what we thought it would pan out. We may have had glory days, we may not have even had that, and part of our disappointment is not tasting life as we thought it would be. Or it may be we look back and go, it looked like it was going that direction, there was a trajectory towards something, but it has come to nothing. This man, Jesus, he is not doing what we thought the Meshach, the Messiah, the anointed one would be doing. And I am not in the place that I thought I would be as the last of the Hebrew prophets. So it's speaking to the disappointment of suffering for doing the right thing. Speaking to that that pain where we're in a place where life hasn't turned out the way we thought it would. Was that was that really you the Messiah? Was is are you the really the one that was supposed to come? He was convinced when Jesus was beginning his ministry that he he knew who he was. In John's gospel he says, I am the one, Isaiah prophesies, I am the one who's going to prepare a way for the will in the wilderness for the Messiah to come. He doesn't even it's not even the biographers of John the Baptist and Jesus who say that. In John he says it himself. He knew who he was, he knew why he was there and he knew who he was preparing a way for. And then a year on, so when, when Jesus' ministry is booming and his is reduced, he's questioning, is this really what this is supposed to look like? And what I love about Jesus is he gives two very gracious responses, which I have found particularly helpful in my life. So there was a particular area in my life where I felt like I was touching into the glory, not just me, but, but, but others as well, touching into the, the glory days of something coming into something and I'd say for the last four years just hit a disappointment of it's not looking like I thought it would look like it felt we were on I was on a trajectory in a certain area of promise in my life from God I felt like I was doing all the right things and it feels like I've hit something and that and and I am if I'm honest in disappointment because it doesn't look like what I thought it would look like So this is not just pertinent to John, it's not just pertinent to history, to 2,000 years ago. It suddenly becomes pertinent to any of us who feel we're doing all the right things, but we hit disappointment because it doesn't look like we're seeing the promises of God delivered in our life. And it feels like we've done the right things, not the wrong things. So Jesus gives two responses, which I think are really helpful. Firstly, he doesn't, he, on a side note, he doesn't take offence at that. He doesn't, he doesn't rebuke John. He doesn't say, I can't believe you don't get it. He's very kind and gracious to us always. He says, look at the evidence. The blind see. The lame walk. The deaf hear. And the, and the poor, who have always been downtrodden and oppressed, have received good news. You see, what, what he was doing was, was recovering some verses in Isaiah the prophet about what the Messiah was actually going to do. Not what they thought the Messiah was going to do. Not what I think God's trajectory on my life is going to look like. My embellishment, my understanding of putting my own self, perhaps even some triumphalism into it. He actually stripped back to what God had always said the Messiah was going to do. And the Messiah was going to be a suffering servant. The Messiah was going to go through those waters of baptism, the chaos and the death, 
of the human condition up into the resurrected new humanity. God had actually never promised any other kind of Messiah. He promised a Messiah who would inaugurate a new humanity, particularly in Isaiah, in, in, in culminating in a whole new renewed heaven and earth, delivered fully from the toxicity of the human condition. He never said he would be a political leader that kicked off Roman tyranny. He actually did something far more profound. Profound, he kicked off and delivered us from the tyranny of the human condition. And so what we have in this moment of disappointment is an invitation to reframing, to, to stripping back. What did God actually say? What did he promise? And, and, and just having the, the confidence and the humility to, to go back to the promises of God and say, he promised a Messiah, he promised an anointed one. The Hebrew Bible points to Jesus, but the Jesus he pointed to all along is going to be the kind of new creation that is about setting people free, giving people sight, enabling people to walk and enjoy true humanity. It was never about what it had become about. And, and, and most poignantly and, and most difficult of all for these first century Jewish followers of Jesus, including Peter, it would mean going through a suffering and a crucifixion and entering into the chaos waters of death before come, being raised from the dead and bringing in, inaugurating a new creation, a new humanity. Um, when Jesus says to John, I want to be baptised, one translation of John's response is when he says, I can't baptise you, you must baptise me. Jesus says, don't hinder me. You're hindering the work of God by your presumption of what it looks like. Jesus similarly rebukes Peter when Peter says, you won't suffer. You, the, the, that, that, the humiliation and shame of crucifixion, the worst possible um, punishment that anyone could ever have in the whole of human history. You won't go there. That's not the vision. That's not the messianic hope. He says, get behind me the Satan, the accuser, the slanderer, the liar. You're lying to me. You don't have in mind what I'm actually needing to do, what God is doing. You have in mind the human understanding of what the messianic hope looks like. And so for all of us in our disappointment, there needs to be a radical reflect framing of what has God actually said? Because he doesn't change and his promises always work. And what are the bits that I've put in or made it look like or put a spin on? This is what I think it should look like. And that's a really helpful process because one of two things happen if we don't look at the evidence We either can push through into a place of blessing or we can miss out on the thing God wants to do us, to us in that place of desolation. There's a really interesting, the Greek word for blessed are those who do not stumble or take offence on account of me is actually scandaliste. Blessed are those who aren't scandalised because I work so differently to the way you think I'm going to work. It looks so different to how you think it's going to be. Blessed are those who don't lose everything because they are scandalised by God. It's so important. There is a moment in all of our walks with God where we have to come to the end of ourselves. As John Wimber said, this is the end of your ministry, now I'll show you mine. We come to the end of ourselves, but we refuse to take offence that it looked different. We refuse to let the disappointment degenerate into cynicism. We say, I'm going to radically reframe my understanding of who God is. He doesn't need to change. 
I do. Because this looks different to what I thought, so my thinking needs to change. And if we have the courage and humility and self-awareness to do that, we enter into a blessing, he says. Blessed are those who are not scandalised, who don't take deep offence, who don't stumble on account of me doing things differently to what you thought they, I would do or it should look like. And this is so encouraging, so such a key to working through disappointment. The first thing, look at the evidence. Look at the evidence, Jesus says. Don't worry about whether I'm the anointed one or not. Does this look like good news? Does it look like good news that people who couldn't walk and therefore in that ancient world couldn't have a job and were despised, that I give them dignity? Does that look like good news that the poor have always been oppressed and raised up and they're able to have dignity and value and identity in a way they would have been completely dismissed? Does it look to you like people who can't see and again would have, would have suffered great humiliation in the ancient world can now see and be part an active contributor into society? For those who are unclean and would have been excommunicated from the synagogue for things like excess bleeding, that they are on their bodies and now so restored they can come back into society. This, this is good news. Look at the evidence. That's the Messiah. That's what he wants to do. That's what he is doing, and that's what he has done for 2,000 years. Now, some of you will have a personal history with God where you can, in those moments of desolation, look at the evidence. I certainly can. By the grace of God, I can look at the evidence in my life of restoration, of provision, of breakthroughs. And as soon as I start, I realise the evidence is massive. But some of you might be watching this. You don't know God at all. You're just tuning in. You have no idea, no reference. I would give you the compelling evidence of the history of things like hospitals and schools hundreds of years ago, over a millennia, a year ago. People who received care and attention were the elite. It was through the Judeo-Christian vision, Genesis 1, all humanity, male and female, and made in the image of, the, of Elohim, the creator, that changed the world forever. And this was fulfilled in Jesus' death and resurrection, as Paul, one of his first followers, says, in Christ there is now no social hierarchy, national hierarchy, gender hierarchy. We're all one in Christ. That was radical in the ancient world and has changed the world forever. We're still maturing into the fullness of that vision. 2,000 years on, we're still getting to grips with God's value of, of dignity on individual human lives. In the ancient world, certain people were made in the image of God. Pharaoh, he was made in the image of God, but not the slaves. They weren't made in the image of God. But this writer comes, this writer of Genesis 1, and says all humanity is made in the image of God. And from that moment on, dignity began to be re-injected into the human experience. So we have to understand, even if we don't think we've got a history of God, there is a history of God. There is evidence that God is good and he's at work in the world and he's changing our mindset about what's true and real. So find the evidence when you're in that place when it doesn't look like what you thought it would look like. When it does, when the glory days seem behind you or you don't even have faith they're going to happen at all. Find the evidence of God at work, either in your own life, or if you can't do that, why hospitals and schools came to existence. They were Christians who had a Christian vision that you served the last, the least of the lost, and you raised everyone up to the dignity that God puts in them. Look at the evidence. Is this good news? And secondly, and go through the scandal of your own sense of injustice. 
into the blessing that comes to those who still, even though they don't understand at all, still put confidence that God is good, that Jesus has come, he has changed the world forever, and we are inhabiting that ongoing story of good news. There is a blessing that comes. Now, we don't know with with John the Baptist, there is, is silence in all four Gospels about how he responded, but I just want to take that honour, I just want to honour him now. He's the, the last in the tradition, Jesus talks to him about the greatest of the Hebrew prophets. In a tradition of prophets, he spoke truth to power and almost invariably paid the price with their life. We don't know, but we think Isaiah was probably sawn in half under the evil king Manasseh, according to Jewish tradition. We know Jeremiah was killed. These people who had this incredible courage to say what you're doing isn't right and often paid a price with their life. That's our heritage that we've been grafted into. So I just want to um, honour the end of John the Baptist's life, which is not only recorded in all four Gospels, but also by a Jewish historian, Josephus. Says it in different ways in each of the Gospels. In Luke, it just says simply, Herod saw Jesus doing incredible things. Herod Antipas. And he was perplexed because some people were saying John had been raised from the dead. But Herod said, I beheaded John. Who then is this I hear about? And we know in all four gospel accounts and in Josephus, the Jewish historian, that that John the Baptist was executed under Herod Antipas probably a year or two before Jesus was as well. Herod Antipas in cohorts with Pontius Pilate and the religious and political elite just just the, 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 the next story in people who speak truth to power and the truth and the power can't handle it, so they have to kill them. So we don't know how it worked out for him in his faith. We have to hope that that was enough for him to look at the evidence, have his reframing of what Isaiah really promised this suffering servant would achieve and see that in Jesus that was fulfilled. But for all of us, we are in that liminal space. If we're in disappointment, we're in that liminal space where we can choose our own outcome. We can be scandalised that it looks different to what we thought it would look like and take offence and miss out on the blessing. Yes, we're loved. Yes, God still has a plan, but we miss out on that breakthrough blessing. Or we can choose to not take offence, not stumble, not be scandalised that injustices seem to continue and justice seems to be trampled under feet. And trust that God is good. He is doing a work. There is evidence of his goodness in our own lives and in the story of the unfolding story of humanity. What is incredible, though, about Jesus is unlike the others who were dead and they were buried. It says John the Baptist's disciples found his body, not his head, and they buried him. But Jesus conquered death, was physically raised from the dead and did achieve inauguration of a new humanity, a whole new way to be human, a new creation which would deal finally with this toxicity of the human condition, which would enable people to have power who could serve and release others in their care to greatness, exactly as God had designed in Eden. He has brought good news into the world. He has changed the world. And in the completion of time, all injustices will be dealt with. Justice will be done and he will inaugurate a fully renewed heavens and earth.
It really is good news to any of us who are sitting in the poverty of our own disappointment that we can stand on the evidence of his goodness in history and his triumph over death itself. Thank you, Alice. It's really good news, isn't it? Just like Paul was saying a few weeks ago, um, the, the gospel of Jesus is good news. It's really good news. And uh, I think, you know, good news, as Alice was saying, when life doesn't look like we expect it might do. And I, I, I think it's uh, it'd be good for us to... Uh, I think there's always been a, a calling on, on hope um, and, and, and really in the culture of the church since it started, Silas Nally started like 20 years ago. It, it, it's, um, it, it's, we, we're, I think we're a community of people that are in this for real. And, and I'm not saying that other people aren't at all. Uh, in fact, that's, that, that's the Christian life, isn't it? But I know that many, you know, thinking of many people within hope, um, you know, there's that, there's that passion and recognition of, of, of it's costly to follow Jesus. And, uh, and, and, but actually I'm all in and, I, and, I'll, and I'll give my everything. And I, and I think there's some of that captured in what Alice was saying this morning. And, uh, you know, we had our family church last night and um, we were talking about how many people, we, talk, we were talking about St. Patrick, we watched a, a song by a band collective on YouTube and, and, they, and they were playing uh, in, in Belfast and, and we were talking about the troubles there and, and, and uh, St. Patrick going to, going to Ireland and the, and the history that, that he changed in that nation by going to Ireland. And, uh, and then we talked about how actually many Christians, um, people, all of Jesus' disciples pretty much, Paul himself, they all suffered actually in their lifetime. And, uh, and, but, but Paul writes frequently, he was, there's nothing, he would, no place he'd rather be, um, than in the joy of knowing Jesus. And he says time and time and again through his letters that the joy of knowing Jesus is worth it. And he, you know, yes, it's painful, but he would gladly go through those things. And, and this, the other disciples are the same. And through history, through, through history, Christians have, have suffered. And, it, and, and Jesus says it's part of their life of faith. And we've lived in a time, haven't we, you know, as a, as a, as a nation when we've been pretty blessed and pretty peaceful and, and there hasn't been much suffering for us as a church. It's, it's unfamiliar to us. So the coronavirus pandemic has come as a bit of a shock. But actually it kind of brings us into alignment with other parts of the world and Christian history. Um, so, but, but the response is, and I, and I see this in, in, in the culture of hope that we just love and are so grateful to be part of, that we're a people that are all in, aren't we? And I, and I, and I think that's the appropriate way to respond to the, the message, to the gospel, to the message that Alice has brought this morning. Paul writes in Romans 12, he says, In light of this good news of Jesus, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. And be transformed by the renewing of your mind to, and to see God's different way of working in the world. So I wonder if we just finished. Do you want to do you want to stand where you are and um, and let's 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 say that we're look, God we're all in for this. We're, we we want this. We recognise it's costly, but we we accept that and we recognise that you're you know you're bigger than the cost and you're worth it. So Lord, we just stand here now as your church and um, and we say yes to to your different way of doing things. We we lay our disappointment down uh, on the ground at the foot of the cross and we say your way. May it be your way. We recognise that part of the way you work is through death and resurrection. So we, we lay things down and we, and, we, and, and we say, use us, Lord. We're your people. We accept a different path. We accept a different way. And we offer you our bodies as living sacrifices. We pray that you use us to serve you, to show the world the love of God that is beyond our comprehension. Amen. Great.
good to be walking with you. Great to be travelling with you. And uh, we'll finish there. Just a reminder, we've got a few things happening this week. Uh, we've got our, our women's Zooms uh, on Tuesday morning breakfast and Tuesday, uh, Thursday lunchtime. And we recognise that we, we walk together as a community and we are like iron sharpening iron, cheering each other on. That's why we have these small communities within the larger church family, so that we can know each other and walk with each other. We have fours that are designed to be that. They're designed to be a place where you can, you can really support each other and know the details of each other's lives and, and cheer each other on in, that, in this life of faith. And then the women's Zooms and the men's breakfast settings where that happens on a different, slightly larger group. And then we have some of our, our boats and things as well. Um, so the, and Parenting for Faith is happening as well on, on Wednesday, 8 o'clock. Uh, again on Zoom, and that's again helping parents to to raise up children who know Jesus and will walk with Him and 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 live life His way. So bless you this week to grow as a disciple, as a follower of Jesus. Whether for you it's a hidden time, whether it's a hard time, it's a confusing time, or whether it's a time that feels like you're just seeing God's favour around every corner. Uh, bless you in Jesus' name. Amen.